raw, uncut, and unapologetic. Welcome to Men Talking Mindfulness with your hosts John McCaskill and Will Schneider. Here we focus on helping men and those with men in their lives solve some of life's complex challenges through understanding the practices of mindfulness and how they can help. Each episode is in an environment free of judgment and criticism with a focus on authenticity and inner peace. Let's dig in. Imagine you're flying in an FA-18 Super Hornet jet near the speed of sound. Your plane malfunctions and you need to eject out of this jet at 695 miles an hour. And you land in an in ice-cold Atlantic Ocean. This isn't a story out of an action fiction novel. This is what today's guest, Keegan Gill, experienced back in 2014. Hello, everyone. I'm Will Schneider. Welcome back to Men Talking Mindfulness, where my co-host, John McCaskill, and I break down and demystify an aspect of mindfulness and make it meaningful to you. We're back for another show. I'm really excited to talk to Keegan Gill today. Um, John, how are you? Great to have you back. Great to be back for another episode. I think you have some announcements for us as well. Yes. Yeah, man. I'm doing great. Uh, Very excited about this show. Very excited to dig in here and and learn all about Keegan and, and his experience. But yes, the announcements that we have, we have been talking about this for a while and we're going to continue to beat this drum. We have that Men Talking Mindfulness, Mindfulness Adventure Retreat, September 16th through the 19th. And we'd love for you to join us and learn more. Uh, go ahead and head to mentalkingmindfulness.com slash retreat link uh, or listen to Will and myself chatting about it on the MTM uh, episode that we did a few weeks back. We did a full episode on it. We'll put that link in the show notes. We also have the MTM summer merch sale going on right now with our new custom design super MTM t-shirt. If you'd like to see what this is all about, head to mentalkingmindfulness.com forward slash merch. Now that all said, let's go ahead and bring our guest up on the show. There he is. Keegan, good to see you, man. How you doing? Great. Thanks for having you guys. Yeah, good to have you here. So we'll run through your bio real quick, and then we're going to get into the show. So in 2014, U.S. Navy F.A. 18 Echo Super Hornet pilot Keegan Smurf Gill survived the fastest ejection in the history of naval aviation at 695 miles per hour. His body was devastated, impacting the sound barrier, leaving him with a traumatic brain injury, broken arms, legs, shoulder, neck, and a wide variety of nerve and blood vessel damage. His parachute disconnected, his parachute disconnect malfunctioned. I actually used to work on those Keegan. So I was a parachute rigger back in the day. So it's probably oh, yeah. one of us, <laughs> but it malfunctioned and repeatedly drug him under the icy Atlantic ocean while he awaited rescue with lungs full of saltwater and severe hyperthermia. He was rescued by a Navy H 60 Seahawk helicopter after a dozen surgeries two years of intense rehab and overcoming prescription drug addiction, he returned to flying the FA-18 Echo Super Hornet and then had some more dramatic twists to his story. He is now on a continued path to healing via holistic means, including the use of psychedelic therapy while he trains and competes in ultra endurance events. Welcome, Keegan, man. We're uh, super excited to hear all about that. Thank you. Yeah. I'm excited to talk about it. Yeah, <laughs> it's been man, a wild yeah. uh, adventure. 
So it sounds like it's it sounds like it. And I know before, uh, you know, before I hit record on this, I asked you where you were and you're you're up in I think it was Michigan uh, training for one of the most grueling mountain bike rides in the world. So it sounds like you've come a long way and we'll get into all that here shortly. But prior to that, I'm going to turn it over to Will to do our opening practice. Will, back over to you, brother. All right. Uh, okay, let's do this. So stop what you're doing. Eyes opened or closed you know, feet grounded, uh, hands grounded if you can. And we're just going to take a few breaths and, and just really understand how incredibly powerful the breath can be to create stillness, to create clarity, to help ground us in this moment and kind of get away from, you know, the yesterday and tomorrow of the mind. So we'll just start with a nice little exhale out. Empty all the way out, all the way out empty and hit that bottom and then take a big giant breath into the nose. Big, big, fell all the way to the top of the chest. Let's hold that breath for three, two, one. Exhale out the mouth. Empty, empty. Let it go, let it go. Hit that bottom again. We'll do four more of these. Inhale really big. You know, if it's helpful, maybe bring a hand to your belly and hand in your chest to make contact with your breath. We're going to hold that for three, two, one. Exhale all the way out. Empty. Empty, very good. Empty, empty. A few more in really big. That's it, that's it, that's it. So nice. Holding again for three, two, one. Exhale out. Feel the way your feet are grounding you down. If you're sitting, feel the way your sit bones are grounding you down. Two more. Inhale big. Good, good, good. We'll hold again. Three two one exhale maybe your face starts to relax your shoulders relax you take the breath all the way out just experiencing yourself and giving yourself more peace through the breath one more time inhale really big the bigger the breath the more opportunity you have in that exhale to find more peace we'll take that hold for three two one and exhale let it go all the way out empty empty Empty. Awesome. Just take a moment here in a little silence, a little stillness. Just open your ears and listen for sound. Not trying to change anything, just being with what is. You know, why'd you come here today? What's maybe an intention that you have? Just close it one more big breath in. And let it go. Very nice. Ah, so good. So good. So good. Awesome. When you're ready, make little micro movements if you like through the head, neck, shoulders. Oh, if you can extend the arms out, go ahead and um, open the eyes when you're ready if they were closed. And uh, let's get this party started. So, uh, we'll where should it. we begin, gentlemen? Thank you. Thank you. Let's. Uh, Let's, you know, we, we covered a little bit about what we're going to get into here shortly, but let's lay the foundation for, for the audience. I mean, obviously, yes, Keegan, that crash. I mean, holy shit. <laughs> that, that sounds crazy. We're going to get into that. But let's, uh, let's talk about what brought you into the service, uh, the Navy, and then what drove you to be a jet pilot initially. So uh, when I was pretty young, my parents... Uh, 
had a friend that took me up in a little Cessna 152, uh, just a little prop plane. And I loved it from the time I got to do it, you know, uh, at a very young age, I was maybe 10 years old or so. And that kind of stuck with me as I went through school. It was kind of the one thing that I had found in life that I was like, I could, that seems like something I would enjoy doing if, if I had to do one thing for a career. And I uh, went through high school and ended up out of high school. I didn't really have anything that really stuck, but I knew that I enjoyed that aviation experience. And there's a small aviation school uh, right in my hometown, uh, up in Traverse City, Michigan. It's called Northwestern Michigan College. And they have a really good little flight program that's a fraction of the cost of what you'd pay to go to a big university uh, for flight training, which can get pretty absurdly expensive. So I decided to do that. Um, I was waiting tables and then going to college and really dug it. And by the time I was a junior in college, I had gotten my private, my instrument, my commercial, my multi-engine, a variety of other uh, qualifications. And then I got my CFI and CFII. So I, I was a flight instructor. And as I finished my four-year degree, I worked as a flight instructor. And as I graduated college, I got hired on to fly uh, for a small business. So I did corporate flying for about a year and I got to experience corporate America and I traveled all over the country, largely flying single pilot in a brand new Mooney Acclaim. Uh, you know, it was pretty cushy living, uh, <laughs> brand new equipment and super nice integrated autopilot and Garmin 1000 avionics and a lot of good food and, uh, and I kind of got a glimpse into corporate America and I wasn't a huge fan of that world. Uh, and after Me about neither. a year, I was just kind of like, I feel like I need something else in my life. And I had a friend who was applying to go to Navy OCS as a pilot. And I, at first I had no idea that that was even an option for me. I, I thought you had to go to the Naval Academy and your dad had to be an admiral. <laughs> and so I was like, I, I don't, that, that can't be me. I'm just like this kid who went to community college, you know, and my friend's like, no, you can apply and you have flight experience. You did good in college. So put a package in. And so I did. And I got picked up. Uh, I, you know, I grew up in Traverse city, the, the blue angels would come up. So I was had a bit of an interest in the military world. Uh, when I was growing up, my parents wouldn't let me play with GI Joes. I couldn't play <laughs> mortal Kombat, So they were kind of anti, uh, confrontation, anti-military, but it kind of, you know, I always enjoyed war movies and, and that sort of brotherhood of the military and it seemed really appealing. And so I got in and then I went to Navy OCS and before I knew it, I was uh, on my way to flight school. Wow. Yeah, what's, you're, that, uh, what's, the, what's the OCS mean? I'm sorry. I'm like the oh, ignorant, uh, you know, military person. That's okay. That's okay. For other people out there, like uh, OCS, what does that mean? Please. So, <laughs> you don't Thank you. Uh, OCS is just an acronym for Officer Candidate School. It's essentially, okay. it's basically boot camp. Uh, and you get to run around getting yelled at by Marine Corps <laughs> drill instructors and salty old Navy chiefs. You get to drill with the <laughs> rifle, do a lot of push-ups, run around yelling and uh, getting beat up. So, okay, uh, thank you for that. Know, I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. In short, it's uh, in short, it's a hazing process to weed <laughs> out uh, people who aren't serious about it. Excellent. Yeah, Keegan, you're also like uh, you're somewhat of a unicorn in that you already had your pilot 
training, you are an instructor, you are very good already, typically will for, for you and for some of our audience, a lot of those folks who come into the Navy, they come into the Navy to be an aviator, to be a pilot, but they have zero experience actually flying. Mm -hmm. Like they get to Pensacola and they go, they, they wait for months, sometimes years even, just waiting to get into the, the training pipeline. And wow. you've already got, I'm sure, I'm sure you still have to do that anyway to, to learn, you know, to show the Navy that you could do it. But the fact that you had that as a, as a background, I'm sure the Navy was chomping at the bit to get you into the pipeline. Yeah. And it, you know, it was, it was a advantage, I think during the very first part of flight school, uh, in some ways it was a disadvantage because I already knew how to do a lot of things my way. And I kind of had mm. to relearn how to do everything the Navy way, which mm. had its own challenges with that. Um, but it definitely helped me out. I mean, there are guys going into the aviation program. They've got photographic memories and they're just way smarter than I am. And I was able to, you know, rely pretty heavily on my aviation experience. And I had already built that skill set, which just the stick and rudder side of it really helped me a lot, uh, sure. at least initially after, by the time I got into intermediate jet training, everybody was pretty much at the same level. So that, that was kind of a kick in the butt. Uh, yeah. and it was, it was a challenge getting through, even with my aviation experience, it's, uh, very high standards and there's a lot to learn and everything is very detailed and there's a ton of memorization and, and rote processes you got to get down. And, uh, so I was still, I was working my butt off, but that's kind of what I came to do. And I, I took flight school very seriously and, uh, and it paid off by the time I yeah. finished primary flight school, uh, I was, in the top half of my class, I was able to select tail hook aviation. And then I went to Kingsville, Texas, where I trained in the T-45 Charlie Goshawk, which is a single engine jet. And after about six months in that aircraft, I completed intermediate training and got picked up for the strike pipeline, which is to go fly, uh, in this case, F-18s. And nice. That went yeah. well, and I ended up selecting F-18 Super Hornets in Virginia Beach. And I went to VFA 106, where I did a year of training in F-18. And after that, I, I went to VFA 133, uh, VFA 143, the Puke and Dogs in Virginia Beach, uh, Virginia. <laughs> nice. And that's the, so, okay, now now we're you're at, there at Oceana, I'm assuming in Virginia Beach. Yep. Um, and now you're you're flying your your jet and you do you have at this time, do you have your Smurf call sign? So, no, it's kind of a funny story <laughs> that ties in with this. I I had been in my squadron for almost a year and, you know, I wasn't the new guy anymore. There there was four or five newer guys than I and a lot of them already had call signs. But I had been playing the small mouth, big ears role very well. So I hadn't really done anything to stick Smart out. Man. They had a big whiteboard with everybody's call sign potentials on it. And all the other guys had dozens of really funny ones. And I had like someone put like a few desperate attempts up there, but I hadn't really, <laughs> I hadn't really stuck out in any way. And actually on this day that I ejected, uh, the, one of the senior junior officers in my squadron came up and he's like, Hey man, you just haven't done anything stupid enough yet to get a call sign. <laughs> and then, uh, and then that day I ejected. All right. So, well, yeah. So that's, you know, the, uh, the call sign for our audience 
in like Top Gun and all the the Navy and Navy and Air Force movies, uh, you know, the call sign is like super cool normally. Uh, some, but it's not like that in the actual Navy or the actual no. military. It's normally something that you screwed up and they turn it into a call sign for you, basically to mock you the whole time. Yeah, um, the so, more embarrassing, the better, really. Right, right. So, yeah, <laughs> let's uh, let, let's tell tell us, you know, you said you got that call sign the same day of the incident. Tell us about the incident. Tell us how the call sign is tied into that. So I was going out to fly. It was January of 2014. We had had a very unseasonably cold winter in Virginia Beach. And so we had gotten snow and the water temperatures were frigid. Uh, the buoy temperature near where we were going to be operating that day, the water temperature was 37 degrees Fahrenheit. So really cold ocean water. The air temp was below freezing. So we were wearing dry suits when we fly over ocean water like that. Because if you go into that, you don't have long to live uh, without right. a dry suit. So I was going to my brief. My buddy Fisty was at the duty desk standing uh, squadron duty officer. And he was always doing things to lighten the mood because uh, as I know you are fully aware the military environment can be pretty strenuous and uh, can get you down if you don't have a good attitude. And Fisty is the king of, you know, keeping things light. He's basically like Chris Pratt and Chris Farley had a baby and he popped out. <laughs> so he's just a comedian, always doing funny stuff. And on the whiteboard that day to keep mood light, he had gone on his phone and he had gotten the shark tracker app and he had put up, the location of all these GPS tagged sharks and <laughs> one shark in particular named Mary Lee, who is a 16 foot 3,500 pound great white shark was right Jeez. underneath the working area. I was going to be flying over that day. And so he's like, Hey man, it'd be a bad day to eject. There's a <laughs> 16 foot great white shark underneath right where you're going to fly. And so we were laughing about it. I uh, went out, did the flight, did some air to air refueling, and had extra gas and some extra time. And so we set up to do BFM or basic fighter maneuvering, which is probably what a lot of people think of when they think fighter pilot. It's two jets trying to shoot each other down in a visual arena. It's very dynamic. You're pulling a lot of G's. You're operating weapon systems and defensive systems and radars and, and all these things. There's a lot going on. It's kind of like playing jazz piano and being in a wrestling match and driving in traffic all at the same time. Love that. So it's uh, very physical, very mental. There's kind of like a chess game component of it because you're kind of trying to be proactive and thinking ahead of the other guy's move. So it's a very it fun. If I can ask, oh, is, yeah. is, it, is it a fun experience? I mean, just I can only imagine being in a jet, especially at those speeds and having all this incredibly sophisticated equipment and you're moving and, and yeah. So please, so yeah. So please explain. Yeah. Go ahead. Keep going. It was, uh, it was Thank one you. of my favorite things to do. You know, I really yeah. loved it and I was passionate about it. I was, I was kind of built for it in that I, I'm a fairly short guy. I was about five, seven at the time, 180 pounds. So I was short, pretty muscular, stocky. And so it was easy for me to pull a lot of G's. And so I really enjoy it. Like a lot of guys, you know, they're struggling to pull the G, especially taller guys. Whereas I could, I had that much more of my brain functioning. I felt like, uh, mm. So I really enjoyed it all around. It's just a lot of fun. Yeah. And, mm -hmm. it's very and so because of, because of your, your physical size and weight, that actually uh, you know, influences the, dy the dynamics of the plane and, and how you're able to like cut and turn. Is that kind of what you're so, referring to? So basically, because I'm shorter, I have a shorter distance between my heart and my brain. 
And when you're under a lot of G-force, all that force is pulling the blood down your body, trying to force it into your legs. And by having a strong legs and strong core and a shorter stature, it's a lot mm -hmm. easier for you to force that blood back up into your brain and keep you functioning. So the taller you are and the leaner you are, yeah. that gets more and more difficult. So yeah, I'm Will, six three. I probably wouldn't work. <laughs> I, I wouldn't say, fit in the plane. <laughs> there's uh, a yeah. there's exercises that you can do, like tensing up different muscles that can shift that blood around, and they and then the aviators wear a G suit that actually inflates in different parts of the body to push that blood. But yeah, I, wow. I mean, I, I'm saying this not as an aviator, but I used to be an air crew survival equipment man that used oh, yeah. to maintain all that stuff, the parachute riggers. Um, so I have a little bit of knowledge there, uh, but just for our audience, so you you understand and, and can truly appreciate what Keegan's talking about there and what you do, what you're doing physically. You're not just manipulating the plane, but you're literally manipulating your body and how the blood flow is moving around. It's pretty crazy. Yeah, you're wow. squeezing your legs and your ass and your core, and you are breathing in a very specific way to prevent from G locking. If you don't breathe in a certain way and force that blood into your brain, you'll black out and the aircraft wow. will go out of control and you'll crash and die likely. And so. Well, and you're trained at all this, like how to do these little manipulations and, you know, in your core and your butt and that kind of stuff. And, yeah. So yeah. before you go into the Super Hornet or any, even to fly the Goshawk uh, prior to that, you go to the centrifuge, which is for us was out in Lamore, California, and they put you in this uh, pod and spin you around at high g and so they train you how to do that properly under very high g that's continuous uh and so you get good at it before you go and you yeah. also the more you do it you build up a tolerance to it and your body kind of mm. adapts but got to do that that day and yeah. it mm. was going it was going well my i was flight i was fighting against my commanding officer my skipper who had been doing this for nearly 20 years. He was a Top Gun graduate. He was very proficient, very good at it. And so he was kicking my ass, but <laughs> that's the way the Navy likes to train, you know, throw you in over your head yeah. and figure it yeah. out. And so, you know, I just was, my goal was just to suck a little less on each set. So we did, <laughs> we basically would fight until you kind of get to a conclusion, kind of like if you were doing some sort of martial art, you fight, fight until there's a stalemate or somebody's a, cl a clear winner taps out. And then you mm. reset. So we were on our last set of the day. We were almost out of fuel and we had hit uh, Joker fuel, which is right before you have to head back. So we reset down to bingo fuel, which is your no shit. We need to head straight back to the base or we're going to run out of gas. So we wanted to maximize our time and training. We set up a little lower and a little faster than we normally would uh, just due to the time constriction. No big deal. Uh, we pitched into the merge, which is, you can imagine like two medieval knights uh, driving at each other near the speed of sound. And we blast by each other. And I opted to maneuver my jet. I was already partially inverted and partially nose low. So I just continued to roll the jet upside down and pull and executed what you could call like a split S maneuver, which is basically where I was just diving down at the ocean with the intention of coming back up. Whereas my flight lead, he had gone nose high. And so he was going up high. And so I'm pulling a lot of G's. I'm looking out. I'm straining my body to force that blood. I'm doing the hick maneuver. And I'm forcing my head outside, looking and trying to keep him in sight. 
because if you lose sight of the other guy in these fights, that's uh, an easy way to lose. Mm. So I'm focused on that. I feel all the G force. I'm pulling seven and a half G's. So Jeez. for rough math, and that's a, that's a lot. That's a lot. Yeah, seven times gravity. So seven times. Oh wow. Okay. So yeah. Thank for, you for uh, all both of you guys. Thank you for appeasing all my questions. Like this. Oh no, man, like, uh, that's, they're you. good questions. Good stuff, Will. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks. I appreciate it. So I'm if, sorry, Keegan. Continue. Yeah. Sure. Yeah, no seven problem. G's. So I, I'm at seven and a half G's, so roughly eight G's for rough math. So if my head and my helmet that I'm wearing weigh approximately 20 pounds at about eight G's, that's 160 pounds. So I essentially have 160 pounds on my head. And so your, your neck is working really hard to keep that weight up. You're straining and you can feel that throughout your whole body. It feels like there's some people say it's like an elephant is sitting on your lap because you are just so pinned down and I'm focused outside, and as my jet hits about bullseye nose low, so pointed straight down at the ocean, mm -hmm. it had accelerated to a point that triggered a system in the jet, uh, which is called the G-bucket. And you can think of this like going around a sharp corner in a sports car and then having the steering wheel kick back halfway, which mm -hmm. uh, was pretty untimely. At the time, I mean, this is all happening in just a few seconds. I just felt the jet settle. I just felt that ease and the weight on my head. So it went from feeling like there's 160 pounds pulling on my head to feeling like there's about 80 pounds on my head rather. And so uh, it yeah. eased up drastically and I felt that, but I still had the stick all the way in my lap. And so I was kind of like, what the hell? Why is the jet not turning? And with that ease in G, it eased the turn performance drastically. Mm -hmm. So I was basically Oof. just stuck in a dive at the ocean at this point. And I just went from over two miles up in the sky down to just a couple of thousand feet above the ocean in just a few seconds. And I could sense the ocean just coming up at me very rapidly. And two seconds before I impacted the ocean, I pulled the ejection handle. Two uh, seconds. I was, uh, wow. I was at 51 degrees nose low, so a very steep dive. And I was going 695 miles per hour, which was... 604 knots indicated airspeed or 0.95 indicated Mach, which is 95% the speed of sound. And I was in what's called the transonic tra uh, region. I was at the sound barrier essentially when I ejected, which is about the worst place you can eject because, you know, back when they were test piloting and trying to break through the sound barrier, all the engineers were saying you cannot get through the, sp the sound barrier because the drag is just so forceful, the jet cannot get through it no matter what we do, which they eventually proved you could get through it. But that is a region where the drag acting on the aircraft, or in this case, my body was tremendously forceful. And mm -hmm. a normal ejection below 200 knots, straight and level, best case scenario, guys still get flail injuries, guys still uh, get neck injuries, get their spines compressed. It's a very violent, uh, you know, last resort to get you mm -hmm. out of the aircraft in under a half second. It's basically a rocket. As soon as you pull that handle, there's a rocket motor that lights off under your ass and shoots you out of the jet. Instantaneously, mm -hmm. you get about 50 G's acting on your body. And that oh my God. down to about a 14 G sustained boost out of the cockpit. And so just that force is very violent. And then I hit that airflow. <laughs> which was like getting hit by an explosion, uh, a 700 mile per hour explosion. 
And to put that in context to what that would be like, if you've ever stuck your arm or your head out a car window going down the highway at like 70 miles per hour, well, that parasitic force or that parasitic drag that you felt acting on your arm or your face, that is exponentially stronger as you increase. So at 700 miles per hour, that force was a hundred times stronger than what you would feel at 70 miles per hour. And that was so forceful. It ripped my helmet off my head, uh, gave me a traumatic brain injury. I broke my neck. I broke my left scapula and my shoulder, both my upper arms broke my right humerus and my upper arm broke and tore through my brachial artery. So I was bleeding out uh, profusely internally. My left forearm, my radius and ulna shattered in multiple pieces. My lower legs flailed around so violently. Uh, I had steel toed boots on and the steel toed boots as my legs started to break and flail around became like a mace, like a medieval weapon, just oh, smashing my tib fibs apart. So I had oh big open fractures, God. chunks of my tibia fell down for like little snacks for Mary Lee as she took <laughs> below me and uh, wow. so I was destroyed. I had a variety of different nerves were severed, uh, brachial plexus injury, median nerve was severed, mm. nerves in my leg were severed uh, and all this artery damage. And I had ejected so fast it shredded the survival gear off of my vest and it ripped open my dry suit and Within a couple oh seconds, it opened just quickly enough to keep me from dying on impact with the water. And then I plunged into that ice cold Atlantic Ocean wow. in fairly rough conditions. And if you've ever you were been conscious during this, during this ejection process, I'm sorry to stop you, but like what was happening? Like, uh, do you, yeah. So if you can just kind of go, was it, was this a memory you're speaking from or this was like, or, so or was this, I yeah. have, I have retrograde amnesia from a lot of it, but mm. between, the little bit of memory snippets that I still have. Uh, and then I've been able to recreate the whole story based on the air data recorder that came out, the black box that came out with the ejection seat. We were able to get all the aircraft parameters uh, from talking to the on-scene commanders, the rescue swimmers. And we've been able to recreate everything in very good detail. Uh, and there was a whole mishap investigation as well, which was where they were able to really pick it apart and figure out what happened. So. Yeah, it's kind yeah. of a combination of all those sources that I've been able to really piece yeah. it back together uh, as accurately yeah. as possible what happened. And wow. so, okay. So you're going in the water. So thank you. Yeah. So 37 degrees with uh, what was the shark's name? The 16 foot shark uh, name Mary waiting Lee. for you. Mary, <laughs> Mary Lee waiting. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, if you've ever been in, in water at that temperature, it, it feels like needles on your skin. It's so cold. And when your head goes underneath it, it's like brain freeze. It hurts so bad. And now my parachute that had just saved my life sunk underneath that ocean current. And there's a system that malfunctioned to disconnect me. You know, some of our survival gear is like Vietnam era equipment. And so mm. it's uh, unfortunately in this case didn't work very well. Uh, the goal of the SeaWars is because upper body injuries are so common in high speed ejections, they put a system into the into the harness that basically automatically connects your parachute. So you don't have to reach up and manually disconnect it with broken arms, which in my case was impossible. My arms didn't work anymore. They were just flailing little limp things at my sides. And so yeah. one of the sewers fired once it got into the salt water, but it didn't disconnect The other one didn't even fire. So that parachute didn't disconnect properly and sunk underneath the water and the current grabbed it. 
and that started to pull me underneath the ocean. And if you've ever been held underwater when you want a breath of air, it's a pretty miserable feeling. And that's where I was for a good hour and a half of just basically being teabagged repeatedly with no ability (laughs) to swim against it. My dry suit had shredded, so it quickly filled with that cold ocean water and also became like a sea anchor. So I was just this soggy, wet bag just getting pulled under repeatedly. And in my mind, you know, there's this big great white shark underneath me that could come up and finish me off anytime. Uh, what was helping you pull back up? I mean, because yeah. you, you, your, your limbs are broken, you know, you, you, no ability to swim. So what was helping you, you know, kind of keep the surface and, and, and stay alive for 90 minutes? I mean, it's not like this is five so, minutes, 90 minutes. Yeah, fortunately, my LPU, my life preserver unit automatically inflated around my neck. And it's basically this little inflatable system around your collar that inflates up. And that floated just enough to occasionally allow me to float to the surface and get a quick breath of air before it would pull me back under. Wow. But wow. At least something was enough. working. <laughs> yeah, Jesus. that's about the only piece of my gear that actually worked. Uh, my beacon malfunctioned, wow. so there was no beacon on my position. Oh. Uh, <laughs> fortunately, my flight lead saw me go down. And he dropped a GPS mark so he knew my location. And he quickly coordinated with air traffic control to get more aircraft on my position as he was almost out of gas at this point. Uh, So he had very limited time. And what fuel and time he had left, he got down very low and very fast. And there was a fishing vessel about a mile away from our position. And he was able to buzz or thump their bow, which is mean he got really low and really fast and flew over the bow of their boat and just you know, created like a shockwave of air that got their attention. They switched up to maritime guard, uh, which he was able to communicate to them over the radio at this point and get them back to my position. The fishing vessel wasn't able to provide a whole lot of help, but they did provide a visual reference for my rough position because my reflective helmet had ripped Uh, off. So uh, all I was was this little tiny dark head bobbing around in the open ocean that was continually getting pulled under. So there was, it was very difficult to see my position. Yeah. Uh, he got other aircraft on scene at this point, there are multiple rescue helicopters coming in. The coast guard had sent a helicopter initially. Uh, they had gotten a boat out that way. And after that hour and a half, a Navy H 60 Seahawk helicopter showed up from two different squadrons, one from, uh, HS nine, which was operating off an aircraft carrier nearby. Mm-hmm. And then another one from HSC 28 was actually about to go do a mission with the SEAL teams and they weren't even yeah. equipped for a, uh, wow. they weren't equipped for a SAR, a search and rescue, uh, but they came anyways. And the first wow. helicopter that showed up, there was a miscommunication of my position and they weren't able to get eyes on and their rescue swimmer had gotten in the water, but he wasn't coming to me. Fortunately, the other helicopter from HSC 28 saw my position and their, hill, their pilot spotted me first, flew over to my position, and their rescue swimmer, Cheech, uh, is his call sign, jumped in and came to save me. He said he hooked wow. into my titanium D-ring, which is on my harness. And as he hooked into me, he said the force of that parachute just drug both of us deep under the water. Oh, and he, my God. You know, he's, a, he's a rescue swimmer. He's a strong swimmer. But there was nothing he could do or I could do to keep that force of the parachute from just pulling wow. us deep under. And he said he had, he was used to training in a pool where he gets pulled under and seeing the bottom of the pool and it being very comforting, uh, comforting. But yeah. in this case, 
we got pulled under and he said he just looked down and it was just this dark blue abyss and luckily his wow. training he got out his uh, knife and was able to cut all the paracord off of me and get us back up to the surface wow. uh, got me back up into the helicopter and then we headed to norfolk general which is a level wow. one trauma center in norfolk virginia the ride there how, was how far sorry keegan how far off of shore were you like how many miles into the ocean were you uh, i if, was approximately if, yeah. uh, approximately 50 miles directly offshore oh of virginia God. beach so we wow. were out there okay. a ways yeah and yeah and by helicopter it was about a 45 minute flight to norfolk mm. but they mm. said it felt like it lasted for five hours because i was I continuously bet. coding in and out of consciousness they were having to resuscitate me a bunch of times and it was pretty difficult for them thinking I wasn't going to make it, but they got me back, yeah. got me mm -hmm. to the ER and luckily Dude, the I, dream team on. I can imagine. So my wife works in trauma here in Colorado Springs and, you know, she tells me everything that happens, like people get run over, people fall off of a motorcycle or a moped as they're drinking. And uh, occasionally there's a gunshot wound, but it's like one thing, right? One thing is broken on most of these people. I can imagine in the trauma in, in ER, when you're getting flown in there, they're like, we basically got a bag of bones that's showing up and you need to, and you need to fix it. I mean, I can't imagine what they were thinking, but the dream team, sorry, I interrupted you. The dream team's yeah. on. So they're there. Thank you, Keegan. Yeah. They, uh, you know, they initially, they were treating me for hypothermia. They took my core body temperature and my core body temperature upon arrival was 87 degrees Fahrenheit. So it was likely colder than that when I was in the helicopter, but uh, they quickly started treating me for hypothermia. They said, had I not had that severe of hypothermia, I would have bled to death in my dry suit. So it ended up being oh, wow. this wild twist. Yeah, I was shape. wondering that. Yeah, I was wondering that because the cold water, like it, it almost suspends, you know, the body in some way in, in time. But yeah, I mean, the, so there the it is. In so, effect, yeah. Right? Yep. Um, yeah, they, it, it was a free coincidence it saved me from bleeding out and they treated me for the hypothermia mm -hmm. they started draining my lungs that were full of salt water uh I, they put me on dialysis because my kidneys were failing from uh, all that tissue damage was just overloading my system and so they were treating me for everything all at once essentially once i was stable enough they induced a coma and i spent the next week in and out of over a dozen surgeries where they perform uh, fasciotomies on all four of my extremities. All my extremities are now classified as a limb salvage. Uh, not that long ago, I would have been a quadriplegic at best case scenario, but with the fasciotomies, uh, they were able to save my limbs. They were able to do artery bypass on my brachial artery to get blood flow back to my right arm. They almost amputated my right arm uh, because it had, was just basically dead from that blood flow being cut off for so long. They were able to piece it back together with a vein graft. They rebuilt my skeleton essentially with uh, titanium rods and steel plates and screws. So now, if you get to see my X-ray of my body, it looks like Wolverine. You know, everything's just. <laughs> do you, what, what is it like going to the airport? I mean, are there just like alarms going off? I mean, like literally, I was thinking. I heard that you said that earlier. Another show and i was like what do you have a trouble going through do you have a special so, little card that says like i am wolverine and i need so, to, I have to get an easy pass <laughs> so they used to they used to give people cards for it uh but people yeah. were faking them so really they just ask you to see your scars and explain it 
and 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 honestly it's such a high quality metal the titanium and it's a the steel plate in my arm is such a low ferrous metal it doesn't even set off the metal detectors oh wow yeah but if i go through like i was coming back from mexico and i went through an old-fashioned metal detector that was turned up a lot higher to sensitivity and that actually did set it off but uh most places i'm just curious yeah it doesn't even set anything off which uh was kind of surprising Wow. Wow. So, so you're back in the hospital. You have, oh, God, John. Yeah, yeah. No, exactly. I was just going to follow up with exactly what you were. So back in the hospital, you've got all these surgeries. You're basically the bionic man or Wolverine uh, on steroids. <laughs> I like the Wolverine. We're going to go yeah. with the Wolverine. Okay. We're going to go with the Wolverine. <laughs> yeah. so, potential call sign there. Uh, yeah. Yeah, there you go. And, and, now, and now you're sitting here, you know, training for a 110 mile bike ride. How did you get from there? to hear and i know there's a lot of story in between those two so let's let's go there yeah yeah so after a week of all these trauma surgeries i was still in a coma they were trying to get me out of the coma at this uh, point and for the next week there was a lot of talk of like he's just going to be a vegetable he might not wake up and my family's there a lot of my squadron mates are there and the mood is pretty blue and one of the guys in my squadron, the same guy right before my flight, Basil, who was like, you haven't done anything stupid enough to get a call sign yet. Oh, here we go. Here we go. <laughs> and uh, he's like, he's a scrappy motherfucker. He'll be all right. And it kind of <laughs> lifted the mood of the room. And so they took scrappy motherfucker and shortened it down into a makeshift acronym, SMURF. And so SMURF <laughs> I love is it. my call sign. And because it's the Navy, you have to have a politically correct cover story for it. And the cover story for me is I'm a short guy who turned blue from hypothermia. So that's how we're able to get it. Approved. Well played. Well played. A lot of, there's a lot of uh, non-politically correct call signs that we're able to sneak through with creative means like that. Uh, like it. Wow. Well, I was wondering where the, where the capital S and M came from. And that's scrappy motherfucker. I, yeah, I appreciate yeah. that. Because I like saying motherfucker. So uh, <laughs> it's funny, yeah. I, I do. I do. I, I just do. But, <laughs> but thank you. And, uh, wow. and so Smurf was born. I was still out. And after two weeks, I started to kind of come to. And some of my first memories were I could hear people in the room that I recognize. And I was able to open my eyes and see familiar faces. But it was like waking up out of a dream. I had no idea how I'd gotten there. I had no idea I was an injection a combination of all the drugs that they already had me on. I mean, I was on fentanyl and Dilaudid and oxycodone and oxycontin, amitriptyline, tramadol, trazodone. Like they had just put a cocktail into me for pain management. And so I was between that and the head injury, I was really out of it. I, uh, I remember trying to move and it thought, I thought the little wool blanket over me was made of lead or something and was tied to the to the table because I could not sit up, but it was because I was paralyzed. And, oh. you know, the doctors eventually came in, like everybody was very happy to see me. And some of my first memory was like, Hey, you guys get me out of here. Like put me in a wheelchair. I've got stuff to do in the squadron. I need to get back to work. And they're like, no, 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 no. You don't understand. Like you're going to be here for a minute. But I was like, <laughs> no, I'm fine. I don't need to be here. I'm fine. Like, look, I can. And they're like, you can't even move, man. You're paralyzed. <laughs> and so wow. uh, docs and, and the nursing staff eventually came in and they were just trying to be real with me. And they're like, hey, you're you're likely never going to walk again. You're not going to use your arms again. Your military flying career is most certainly over. And something inside me was like, fuck that. I'm I'm going to get better. 
and I'm going to prove you all wrong. And every day was just kind of like try to wiggle something, try to scoot a little bit. And after a couple of weeks in the ICU, I was able to scoot down to the bottom of my bed and sit up. And they were kind of blown away that I could do that. They transferred me down to the Poly Trauma Center uh, in Richmond, Virginia at the VA there, which is a center specifically made for veterans with advanced multi-injury cases. So there was a, a SEAL team guy there from the EO, he was on the EOD that his parachute had malfunctioned and didn't open. And he basically fell several hundred feet without a parachute functioning and oh, just destroyed shit. his legs and his hips <laughs> and his internal organs. There are a lot of guys there wow. with IED injuries, uh, RPG injuries, just dudes that have been blown apart. Uh, and so it was a pretty incredible crew of people there. The staff was very caring, like to work on the unit, you had to have excelled and been promoted to work there. So the staff yeah. was really good. They had just redone the facility. So it was very new. Every room had a TV in it. So what was the vibe? What, what was the vibe, if you can, of like, uh, you know, the patients and the, and, and the nurses and the doctors? Was it, you know, was it very proactive and very encouraging or, or was it something else just to kind of get the energy of the of this Lar hospital kind largely, of in play. Largely the therapists were very positive and friendly. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of the physicians rarely saw you and were kind of disconnected from the process largely, other than once in a while, mm -hmm. they'd come and check up on you uh, for mm -hmm. a couple minutes. But largely the staff was very good. Uh, some shortcomings there that were pretty dramatic were the food was absolutely atrocious. They prepared it about an hour and a half away to begin with, it's this overly processed, just junk food. It's stuffed into yeah. metal boxes and then driven about an hour and a half to Richmond. So by the time you're getting it, it's this like reheated, semi-warm crap food. And for example, what was supposed to be one of the better meals while I was there was called the Holiday Feast. And the Holiday Feast was what looked like the slimy sliced deli turkey meat that had been put on the half off rack because it was about to go rancid. It's oh kind of like God. slimy on the outside, shimmery looking. And then the potatoes were from a box because they still had like the chunks of dried potato in them. The gravy oh. on top looked like they had poured it out of a canned dog food. It still had can rings in it. And then oh. one of my favorite parts was the cranberry sauce was a little white jelly packet that just said in big black letterings on the side, cranberry. And when you opened it up, it was just like a purple jello with artificial <laughs> cranberry flavoring. Wow. And so they're spending and all that was a, that was one, yeah, yeah, that was one of your better meals, apparently. Yeah, that was the holiday right? feast. So that was the holiday you feast. Imagine, you can imagine the non-so-feasty meals. And, <laughs> yeah. uh, and also, you know, the sleep was really poor. They're waking you up all night to check your vitals and give you medication. So kind of some of the basic things that you would think you would have kind of taken care of a little better there were not. And I got to say, it's, it's a, lot, a, lot a lot of the basic things that we talk about on the show. I and mean, we've talked about the better sleep. You know, we talked about the importance of food. You know, we talk about hydration, you know, and, and all of these things in order to really heal the body, heal the mind, especially in such a, you know, your body is in such a crisis and it needs, you know, good fuel, good food. You know, it needs good rest, like deep rest, long rest. And uh, it just sounds like the perfect storm for exactly what they're trying to, to not do, you know, is, is to help you to heal. 
It's like yeah. it's like we're uh, putting you in a prisoner camp and and tr trying to get you to to speak. What are we, what are we what are we going to take away from you? Your sleep, your food. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. It, it's yeah. uh, you know, it's a lot better than it was in the Vietnam era where guys were coming back and getting shoved in a room with twelve other dudes, covered in piss and shit and vomit, and they're lucky to see a nurse once a day, pump you full of morphine, and then once you're fully addicted to morphine, wheel you out in a wheelchair out of the sidewalk and be like, good luck with life. So yeah. Things are better than then, but you know that was an F minus grade back then. Now it's a, you know, like a D plus. So there's still a lot of room. So much better. So much better. And uh, a lot of room for improvement. They spend a lot of money on all these things, all these TVs and equipment, and really good staff, and all the pharmaceutical drugs that you can imagine. If they had just taken one of the drugs I was taking, which I was on over a dozen of these medications, if they had just taken one of those away they could have paid for the best meal every single day for every meal, but right. that's not Great where the point. money goes. And yeah. so I worked every day very hard. I was in therapy all day, every day I was doing speech therapy, vision therapy, occupational therapy, physical therapy, kinesiotherapy, and everything in between to try to regain function. And after three months of that, I was able to get around on a walker, and I was discharged, and then I went to do outpatient therapy at uh, Naval uh, Hospital Portsmouth in Portsmouth, Virginia. So I went back to living in Virginia Beach. My buddy Fisty kind of took me in under his wing and moved me in with him and started keeping an eye on me with my buddy Vinny. And uh, those guys got me out doing stuff right away. Like I could barely walk, but they took me out on their boat. Like I had to have people carry me and put me in the boat because I was still largely paralyzed. But they got me out on the water of Virginia Beach. Once I got a little better, I went on a surfing trip down to the Outer Banks with my buddies. I could barely put on my wetsuit and I still went out surfing anyways. I got beat up and held under and just I probably shouldn't have been out there, but kept popping up to the surface and getting a breath of air with a big smile on my face. Uh, this is four buddy, months, you said, after after the ejection? Yeah, this is the following summer after, and after about a okay. year, I was out uh, surfing, sort of, really just getting okay. beat up by the waves. Uh, I was doing physical therapy. How did that? Yeah. How did that oh, feel that was, emotionally and mentally? Like you're in the water. Last time you were in the water, you were almost dying, and now you're in the water. Uh, you know, and you're not able to surf as you may have once been able to. Uh, how does that feel? I mean, it was, you know, there was frustrations with it, but at the same time, I was just so happy to be alive that I was just, I was down to try anything and everything. And I, I loved it. I loved getting beat up by the waves and it was kind of like getting back on the horse again, you know, and, and getting held underwater and seeing how that would affect me. But it was in a way it was kind of therapeutic to be like, okay, mm. I got held under a big wave, almost drowned again, but I'm still okay. And yeah. It was it was hugely therapeutic. Good one of my you, squadron man. mates, uh, one of my squadron mates, his wife was a physical therapist, and she started working with me, basically full time on the side. And she showed up day one for therapy with a Nalgene bottle, and on the side of it, it said "Patients' Tears." So she was all about like kicking <laughs> my ass, and uh, that was awesome. That was uh, Aunt Smugs or Amanda. She she really helped me improve and get me back running. I had a cane the first day. She snatched it out of my hand and she's like, I don't want to see you walking with a cane anymore. And 
Wow. So after two years of this, uh, you know, my buddy Spicoli got me out downhill mountain biking again. I was, I could barely hold on or use the front brake and I was going down these hills and yeah. What was your strength at this point? Like, as far as like, you know, where you are now or where you were, you know, prior to this accident, like, you know, at what level were you at physical capability and strength and, and mobility, if you will, like if, if you give a percentage or, or if you want to describe a little bit more, I'm just curious. I mean, my, my strength was drastically reduced, uh, going into the accident. I was, you know, I was pretty muscular. I was doing a lot of CrossFit and Olympic lifting and running. And so I was in really good shape and pretty yeah. 180 um, at five, seven. Built. That's, that's and, nice and stocky. Uh, yeah. And so a lot of that muscle had just atrophied away from the nerve damage. So my upper body was extremely weak. I mean, I couldn't pick up a gallon of milk with my left hand and I could barely pick it up with my right hand and carry it. So wow. my grip wow. was drastically reduced uh, from that brachial plexus injury and then the median nerve injury in my arm. Like I had very limited function, but uh, I had undergone more surgeries. They had done some tendon transfers and uh, had done a whole lot to help separate my bones that had all fused together to gain me more mobility. And after two years of intense therapy and like getting out with my buddies, you know, that really helped lifted my, lift my spirits. I went back yeah. and I went back to flying super Hornets and I had to go through wow. this crazy process to get all these medical waivers. But you know, my spirits were bright mentally. I was feeling good and physically I was getting back and I was able to max out the Navy physical fitness test again. And I was literally running circles around a lot of the people at my command and like, Holy shit, he's good to go. And so I went back to VFA 106. I retrained in the F-18, and then I was stationed with VFA 136 Nighthawks at NAS Lemoore in California, flying uh, F-18 Echo Super Hornets again. And uh, I thought I was back. I thought, you know, I had overcome it all and was good, and only I was only going to get better. But we were on a detachment at Tyndall Air Force Base doing a weapons exercise. And I went out on a flight. I got to fire a live AIM-9 Mike Sidewinder, uh, a heat-seeking missile at a drone, and then do what's called DAC, which is dissimilar air combat training, which is dogfighting another jet. And a Hawaiian Raptor squadron flying F-22 Raptors was there at the same time. And so I got to go out and uh, dogfight against this F-22 Raptor. And that was awesome because uh, those things are like spaceships, you know. And... Wow. Uh, I came back from the flight. I was in the debrief watching my tapes and I realized I remembered, I remembered everything from the fight with the, the Raptor, but I could remember very little from the missile shoot. And so that was pretty concerning. I went back to my hotel room. I tried to get some sleep that night. I couldn't really sleep. And the next day I was on duty, just kind of answering the phone and the radio and coordinating the flight schedule and just didn't feel that great. Went back that night and I was trying to set my alarm to get up the next morning to go on a flight. And I couldn't do the math to set my alarm clock. And I was Whoa. trying to sit down on my bed and I got extreme vertigo. It felt like the room was tumbling backwards. And so there was something seriously wrong. And at the time there had been a lot of issues with decompression sickness in the super Hornet community and the F-18 community in general, which was caused by a faulty system in our pressurization system, our ECS or environmental control system. And so there had been a lot of uh, 
pressurization issues where the cabin pressure would randomly fluctuate violently. And a lot of people are familiar with decompression sickness. Uh, if you're a scuba diver, if you come back up from down deep too quickly, essentially the nitrogen and the, the bubbles in your blood come out of solution. And when those little bubbles get into your joints, it can be very painful. They call that the bends. Uh, and that's type one decompression sickness. Type two decompression sickness is when those little bubbles start to form in your brain and they can cause all sorts of mental dysfunction. They can even kill you, give you an aneurysm, stroke-like symptoms. And so in my mind, I was like, maybe this is decompression sickness. Maybe my jet had overpressurized or underpressurized. And that's what it was. That's why I'm having these mental issues. And so our safety officer, Squeezer, drove me to Mayport Dive Base, which was fortunately only 20 minutes away from a hotel. And they put me into a hyperbaric chamber and I spent three and a half hours in the middle of the night getting treated for decompression sickness. I felt a little bit better coming out. I went from the sort of like zombie mode state that I was at to I had gotten my sense of humor back a little bit. I was feeling better. I was smiling again. And the next day I came back in to talk to the doc there and he's like, you know, you might have had decompression sickness, but considering your medical history, I think you should see medical when you get back to Lemoore which, you know, in the military, that's the last thing you want to do because that can end your career very quickly, especially after having gone through everything to get back in the jet that I had done with all the waivers and everything. And so I didn't want to do that, but I also didn't want to hurt somebody. I didn't want to be on a flight and lose my focus and, you know, kill other people or crash a jet again. Like, so I reluctantly went into medical and, after a few weeks, they had a diagnosis of delayed onset PTSD. Uh, I had a severe TBI or brain injury. And unfortunately, that was largely overlooked uh, during those treatments. And looking back, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty and all, but I wish early on that they had recognized the TBI component and focused on that more because I think that was the source of a lot of my dysfunction beyond the emotional PTSD component, which maybe there was some of that, but um, considering the fact that I was very comfortable getting held under the water, I was excited to be back flying. I don't, I don't think the PTSD part was nearly as important as they kind of gave it the credit for. And before long, they were, had me on all sorts of different clinical therapies from cognitive behavioral therapy, ED, EMDR, so eye rapid, uh, rapid eye mm -hmm. movements, Yep. Uh, all these different things in a clinical setting. And before long, they were trying to give me more pharmaceutical drugs, which I had gone through massive withdrawals, getting off of all that stuff before all the pain meds. And I really didn't want to take any pharma meds, but it was the only option that was painted to me. They're like, this is it. Like, this is the treatment. You take these drugs and you go to the therapy sessions and that's what we got. And so I did it. Uh, and before long, they had me on a medication called Seroquel or quetiapine, which is uh, typically used as an antipsychotic medication. However, it's shown promise in getting sleep for insomnia. So I was taking it because I just couldn't sleep. And before long, I started to get worse. I went from the mental dysfunction I was having, the sleep problems. I was getting kind of hypervigilant and paranoid at times. But as I got onto more of the Seroquel, I started to go into full-blown psychoses. So I just lost touch with reality completely. I mean, I 
at one point I thought the government was hunting me. I thought my water was being poisoned. My food was being poisoned. I stopped eating and drinking. I was afraid to go near windows because I thought I was going to get shot. My wife took me to the commissary because at this point she's essentially babysitting me full time. Uh, we went to the commissary and I was going through the aisles with her and everybody in the, in the commissary looked like they were demons. They had big black Jeez. eyes, spiky teeth and these grimaces on their face. And they were all just kind of mean mugging me. And we got to the checkout and the checkout lady reached up to me and, and from my hallucination that I was having, it looked like she was trying to reach up and like suck my soul out of me. My wife got me to the uh -huh. car. We were driving off base and I looked back and it looked like the entire Naval Air Station Lemoore had just levitated out of the ground and there was rebar and broken boulders and dirt crumbling. And there was this big black pit underneath that wow. was, looked to me like a gateway down to hell. And so wow. that sometimes they were terrifying hallucinations. Sometimes they were really exciting. Uh, I mean, there were times I thought I had superpowers. For a while, I thought my wife was Carrie Matheson from Homeland. I thought she was like a secret agent <laughs> sent to. Uh, how long was this me. going on? Like, how long were these episodes going on? Like days, weeks, months? Sometimes, like... you know, sometimes they'd last a few minutes. Sometimes they'd last hours, yeah. and some of them were lasting months. And it just varied minute to minute, day by day, and it just kept getting worse. And the only answer was, you just need more of the medication. You got to stay on this medication. That's the answer out. And wow. so before long, it kind of became obvious. They, they sent me to Stanford to try to do a couple more surgeries for some issues I was having with my leg and ankle. Um, unfortunately, one of those surgeries made things worse. My cognitive functioning just kept getting worse. And before long, uh, they put me into a medical board and I started going through the process to be uh, medically retired. And so that was pretty depressing times. Uh, my son was born. So we had a newborn little boy and I was in such a dark place at this point and so in and out of these psychoses and so miserable. One night uh, I was about ready to kill myself. I had a, a Glock 19 in my end table by the bed and I was about to get it out and put it in my mouth. And I was starting to think, what is the, what's the hops number nine gun oil going to taste like in my mouth? What's the barrel oh, wow. going to feel like on my teeth? And the only thing that kept me from doing it was I looked over and my newborn son and my wife were sleeping next to me. And I was like, maybe I'll just do it later when they're not here. Cause I don't want to wake them up. Jeez. Uh, I came very close to killing myself at that point. And then I spent nearly two years going through the medical board process, which was a miserable process to go through uh, just riddled with booby traps. It seemed like for people to fall through. And even with the support of my command, the support of the medical staff, extensive medical records, it was a shit show to say the least to try to get through that process from getting rating decisions what, at the VA. Uh, what do you mean like going through the medical board? I don't understand. Like what, is that, what does that exactly entail? So, what does that mean? So the medical board is this very overly complicated bureaucratic process you have to go through. If you are suffering from a medical issue uh, and you're going to leave the military for a medical reason and you can just discharge without going through a medical board, but then you don't receive any sort of medical retirement potentially. And I was a clear candidate for, I had a very obvious uh, just a little injury bit. Just a little related bit. <laughs> to my service. And so 
with that service related injury and extensive injuries, I was a good candidate for a medical retirement. Um, and so not knowing what my future was going to be like with the mental function I had and my physical issues still being a problem, you know, I was kind of like, this is, you know, a lifeline for me and my family. So maybe I can get back on my feet again, but, uh, the whole process is pretty, pretty broken. And I had a, it's called a physical evaluation board liaison officer. And she had just inherited this job after six months of nobody in the position. So she was massively backlogged, understaffed, and she really, I mean, she didn't really seem to care about her job either. She thought it was going to be like this nice, cushy civilian contract position that she could just bullshit on her phone all day with her daughter. I mean, I came into my first meeting with her and she's in charge of the whole process essentially. And mm. she, I came to my first appointment and she spent the whole appointment chit-chatting with her daughter about her experiences at college over the phone while I stood in her office because her office was so cluttered with stacks of paperwork on every surface that you could barely stand in the office. So it was just, it was a shit what show. And, uh, I ended up having to appeal my case. Uh, they originally, because one piece of paper got misfiled and misfilled out that they weren't going to give me any medical retirement or anything. So I had to fly out to Washington DC, get dressed up in my dress white uniform and stand in front of this board of uh, senior military officers and plead my case essentially. And fortunately, all you need to do is take off the take off that blouse and just show them. Look, yeah. hey, uh, my arms are jacked, my legs are jacked, my abdomen is jacked. Show them the X-rays. Like, yeah, show on. them the X-rays. And God. the X-ray, the Wolverine X-ray. And uh, oh, fortunately, yeah. you know, fortunately, they when they were able to see it, they were like, "Yeah, this is a very obvious case," and they were they were able to medically retire me. But yeah, it was a very brutal, drawn out process. And once I got back to Michigan after that, uh, we moved back to Michigan. And it was February, so it was just a couple months after being back in Michigan. They had increased my Seroquel dose from 300 milligrams a night up to 450 milligrams a night. And, and the decision behind that was just it'll make you better. You yeah, know, even though yeah, that yeah. was just the vicious cycle I was in is like I'm having these issues, but the only answer is to give you more of this medication that's actually looking back, it was making everything Causing. worse. Yeah. Within two nights of taking that higher dosage of medication. My wife found me, uh, I was completely naked, except I had a black plastic garbage bag tied around my neck like a cape. I had shaved off my hair on my head in big chunks. I had shaved off my eyebrows, uh, a little of my facial hair I had shaved off. And I was about to go out into the snowy Michigan weather dressed like that to fight crime like a superhero. And mm. so my wife called the VA, called my psychiatrist, and he called the police. And before long, a squad car showed up in our driveway to take me to the hospital. But my wife's like, I'm not putting him in the back of a police car alone in his current condition. So she loaded up our little boy and my mom happened to be with us at the time. So we all piled into the car and she drove me to the emergency room. And I was in such an intense psychosis at this point. I looked in the back and it looked like there was a nuclear explosion had gone off at our house and there was debris flying through the air and there was lightning and thunder and there were cars flying and smashing. And it was just like this wild apocalyptic hallucination I was in. They got me to the ER and put into a room that was essentially like a big fishbowl, 
made out of plexiglass. And I went through just wild hallucinations of traveling through time and space. And my mom came in to visit me and she said I was sitting when she first came in, I was feeding crumbs of my food to a monster that I thought lived underneath the wall. And then I would sit in the chair with the remote for the TV and the TV was just static and I was clicking the remote and I just had this big grin, like an eerie grin on my face. And I just kept looking at her going, do you see that? 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 And in my mind, what I was seeing was every time I clicked the remote on the TV screen, I was able to see further and further into the future. Wow. And but to her, I was just her once thriving son now completely insane out of his mind, uh, being real creepy. And once I was stabilized in there, they drove me down to Battle Creek, Michigan in an ambulance. And at Battle Creek, Michigan, I was admitted as an inpatient to the VA uh, psych facility. And that was uh, another terrible experience. Uh, You know, this is a place that's full of American veterans that had largely been injured on the job dealing with serious mental health issues. And again, the only answer there was take a bunch of uh, psych meds. And that's the answer. You're confined to a very small wow. wing. Uh, the food again was terrible. No Jesus nutritional Christ. value. There's plenty of Nutter Butters and Oreos and Doritos. Uh, but there's not a sugar, 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 sugar. What about exercise? Are we able to exercise and get out and do shit? We we were lucky to go outside once a week. And when we did get to go outside, we were confined to the small concrete yard that was in between all the buildings. So there was no like touch with nature. There was no outside time. Sleep was awful. Like there's people yelling and moaning. You're in room with other guys. Uh, They're waking you up throughout the night. They shine uh, flashlight in your face every 15 minutes in cases, so no sleep. Um, so you're, it's basically all the things you would do to a prisoner of war to break them. Yeah. And you're already at the lowest point in your life. You're already driven out of your mind. Now you take an elite warrior, you put him in that scenario for a couple of weeks with no food or crappy sustenance, no sleep confine them. They're going to start to have <laughs> potential hallucinations and things. So and this what was your the- feelings going through all this? Like in this, like, so you get in this psych ward and like, what was, you know, like, were you, were there moments of clarity that you were experiencing or, you know, were you able to like ask questions or ask more help or, or ask, you know, questions about why you're being treated this way? Or, or were you, were you just completely, uh, you know, drugged and therefore like, you know, uh, incompetent, you know, or not so- even, you know? Yeah, I had I had lucid moments. Uh, initially, I was really out of it. Uh, but as I kind of came to, I started to see what was going on. And I was very frustrated by it. One, I had been voluntarily admitted, which was supposed to mean that I could leave at any time I wanted. When I attempted to leave and said I was ready to go home because I thought this place was detrimental to my health, which it was, they said, no, you can't leave yet. Uh, and my family was advocating to get me out of there but they just kept saying, no, we're going to review his case in another week. And they just kept kicking it down. And is it, we'll do it next week. We'll do it next week. And I started to feel like I was a prisoner there. And so I started to plan an escape with some of the other people there. There were, uh, there were several people there who through their battles with mental health had been in and out of the federal prison system, uh, had been homeless and, you know, had, battled with drugs and and bad things that happened to them. And every single one of them that had been to federal prison 
agreed that they would rather be in federal prison than in the psych facility we were in because the food wow. was better. The sleep was better. You got to go outside every day. So oh as an American God. veteran with serious mental health issues, you're literally treated better as a prisoner in our prison system than you are as a veteran uh, in this case. That's awful, man. And I was so angry by that. You know, I started collecting warm clothing. I started collecting uh, non-perishable foods. I started making weapons with uh, wet socks. I would ball them up and put them inside other socks. So I had have a weapon if I needed. And I started coordinating with these other guys on getting out of there. And my plan was I was going to pull the fire alarm. And in the middle of the night, one night I went out and I pulled the fire alarm thinking that they would take us outside. And those of us that wanted to could scatter. There were a lot of guys in there that were just so zonked out on drugs. Like they would have just herded them back inside. But those of us that wanted to could have gotten out of there. But apparently somebody had already tried this trick. And after uh. I pulled the fire alarm, uh, they, they brought me into a room and they said, either we can force this on you or you can just cooperate. And they had a syringe full of what's called Heldol, which is, uh, which they proceeded to inject me with. And the feeling of Heldol for me felt like there were insects underneath my skin throughout my entire body, trying to chew their way through my skin. I just wanted to rip my skin off and scream. I was extremely restless and agitated and uncomfortable. And I mean, if that's not torture, I don't know what is. It was, it was miserable. And you know, that lasted, I don't know how long it was. It seemed like a long time. Maybe it was an hour when those effects finally wore off. And then they proceeded to drug me more until I was basically just drooling on myself. And while Jeez. I was in this kind of drooled out estate, they uh, brought me into a room to speak with a, an attorney that was supposed to be representing me. But all she did was have me sign my name while I could barely think clear on a piece of paper that deemed me as mentally defective permanently. And it put me on a registry with the law enforcement information network. So if I get pulled over now, I'm essentially treated like I committed a felony. I'm no longer allowed to uh, purchase a firearm. And now to this day, like the, these things, are, this, this still affects you. That that signature yeah. still affects your life. How now. is that yeah. even legal to get you to sign I something when you're in that mental state? That's insane. It makes no sense insane. to me. And yeah. and I'm gonna I'm gonna go through the process to fight that and and get that reversed. But I it's something I gotta deal with legally. Yeah. You know. Yeah. And, well, hopefully, this show will help will help with that. Maybe somebody will somebody watching will. Uh, will help you out that or somebody listening later will help you out with that. man. that's, that's crazy. Yeah. I can't believe that. But, uh, I eventually, my family got me out of there, uh, through being a strong advocate for me. Luckily my wife is a ER trauma nurse. And so she had a lot of experience dealing with psych patients. My mom's a physician. My dad works in healthcare and only because they had their medical background, did they allow them to take me home? Uh, I mean, if it was up to the Battle Creek VA, they would still have me there today, I bet. And just drugged out of my mind like a lot of the other guys walking around like zombies in that place. Wow. And uh, how long ago is this? When were you actually released and how did that happen? This was been uh, this would have been February of 2019, February to March of 2019. And so mm. it's been a few years now. And mm. once I got home. I started to actually get, you know, I got to be in my room and get some sleep and eat healthy food and be with my family and get outside. And it took over six months, but I eventually came out of that psychosis. 
but again, they were, you got to take your quetiapine or your Seroquel. And they were still pushing that on me. And I started to look for different ways, different ways out of this because I knew it was not mm-hmm. working and I knew it was making me worse. I was just getting more angry, more cut off, more depressed. I was yelling at my little boy over nothing. And I had just become this shell of the person I once was. I was miserable. Just doing the dishes for me was overwhelming work. And I started, my mental function was very poor at this point. Uh, I could barely focus to read a paragraph. However, I was able to listen to audiobooks a little bit and I could maybe sit in for 10 or 15 minutes before just zonking out. But I started listening to a book by Michael Pollan called How to Change Your Mind. And I started learning about psychedelic therapies for dealing with mental health. And I found huge promise in that. And last August now, I signed up for a, uh, a psychedelic retreat uh, with a guided psilocybin uh, uh, experience. And that, you know, Michael Pollan describes it, and others have described it as sort of like uh, a fresh snowfall on the mountain of your life. And you have all these ruts of ingrained emotions mm-hmm. and behavior. And in my case, they were very negative and anger-based and, and fear-based but it was like a fresh snow over that. And it kind of gave me this emotional opportunity to take these new line choices down the hill in fresh Mm. powder and experience and think differently. And one of the things I recognized from that was that cycle of the medication. I had continued to get worse and worse and worse, the more that medication they gave me yet that was presented as the only option. And so I started in my head to plan, how am I going to get off of this stuff? And I talked to my psychiatrist, they said, that's the best thing you should do. You need to stay on it. You cannot get off Jesus of it. Jesus Christ. And they, ne- all- they never recommended exercise, hiking, getting outside, eating food. Like, that. I mean, no. just, just one thing, just take this drug. And that's it's like, answer. it sounds like it's such a, a fucking lazy approach to, you know, and they're supposed to be concerned for you, you know, and your health and, and, and you getting better. And it just sounds like they're, they didn't give a shit at all. Well, and, uh, there's a huge problem right now, and that is the pharmaceutical industry has become incredibly wealthy, and they now have a massive influence over the policies made at the VA. Talking oh to guys God. that are high up in the levels of the VA, they know that there's an overuse of pharmaceutical drugs, but the pharmaceutical industry basically gets to decide the policies that are made and implemented for the VA and through a lot of other aspects of our healthcare system uh, and because they're so influential in Washington and, and with their lobbyists yeah. and their massive media campaigns and all the influence that comes with that wealth, it's unfortunately that's the go-to at the VA is pharmaceutical treatments. And a lot of money is going into paying for those drugs and going into their yeah. pockets, but the real treatments, the things that actually get people better are just not available. And so I kind of had to go out and start finding these things on my own from, I started a largely plant-based diet. I started a lot of regular exercise, despite Seroquel, you're not supposed to exercise while you're on that drug, which is just <laughs> completely crazy. Of course you're um, not, because then you're going to start to get better. And, yeah, exactly. oh uh, and so little by little, I just started fighting for myself and ignoring the VA doc. Uh, my family was kind of scared because they thought, oh God, here's a, here's a psych patient with severe mental health issues trying to get off his medication and they're listening. You know, these, these psychiatrists are, 
just eating these medical journals up that are written essentially by the pharmaceutical industry to keep people prescribed on these drugs. And it's, it's kind of a broken system where they're able to referee themselves. There's actually a really good book out called, uh, I think it's called Sickening, How Big Pharma Broke American Healthcare by John Ab- Dr. John Abramson. And it's all about mm. how the pharmaceutical industry essentially gets to referee uh, themselves in the world of the medical journal. And so they'll do these big, extensive, oh double-blind placebo tests, but then they get to do their own interpretation of the data from those and their data analysis that they get to do themselves gets submitted to the medical journals for peer review. And so essentially they get to cherry pick the information they want and submit that to the peer reviewers. And in many cases, they've ignored terrible side effects and all these adverse reactions and just, just taking them right out of the studies before they're peer reviewed. So they're essentially refereeing themselves and, publishing what they want in these medical journals. And that's what the doctors are reading. And so many of the physicians are just so misled. Uh, In our country, it's a huge problem because pharmaceutical treatment is like the answer for a majority of our healthcare. And you can see the tentacles of the pharmaceutical industry and the role they're playing in that is good for their business model, but it's not good for our health in any way. And uh, I'm not saying all pharmaceuticals are bad, you know, insulin, yeah. It's pretty important for people. There's 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 treatment yeah. options that are good there, but there's such an overprescription, especially of our psych treatments, uh, are just abysmal. I'd but, say this, yeah. you know, the same for the, the food industry. You oh, know, yeah. the, the marketing of of sugar and and uh, you know the different foods that are zero good for us. Uh, oh, yeah. You know all the all the zero zero sugar sweeteners that are out there, and it's uh, it's we're basically yeah, aspartame. So, yeah. uh, yeah, but I don't want to get, a, you know, onto a, another tangent there that I, you know, I don't want to take us down one. Um, but, um, <sighs> let's come back to the, uh, you know, the psychedelic journey, the psychedelic he- healing that you, that you did. Um, did you do that through any particular veteran organization or did you just go out on your own and do that? So the initial one I just found on my own and then, uh, I put together a fundraiser page for an organization called Warrior Angels Foundation. I had reached out mm. to Vet Solutions, uh, yeah. Marcus and Amber Capone. They run uh, these psychedelic retreats for veterans to heal. Now, right. I'm not I'm not a two-time combat veteran, and I'm not from the special operations community, so I didn't really qualify for their program. But they put me in touch with Warrior Angel Foundation, who was putting on an event called the 4x4x48 Challenge out in Texas. And that's uh, from the mind of David Goggins, a uh, pretty famous Navy SEAL who yeah. takes uh, the idea of the challenge was every four hours, you run four miles for 48 hours straight. So you end up running 48 miles in the course of two days. And I put together a fundraiser page telling about my experiences and they saw it on their website and it just took off and I had gotten a lot of donations. And before long, um, Adam and Andrew Marr gave me a call, the guys that run it. And we're like, hey, we want you to come down to Texas and do the event with us. And I was like, awesome. And I went down there. And at this point, I was just, I had just come off the pharmaceutical drugs on my own. My family is all very concerned saying, you're doing the wrong thing. My VA docs are saying, you're doing the wrong thing. You need to get back on your medication. And I just kind of ignored them because I was starting to feel better. I was starting to be able to think again. I was starting to regain some of my function. I was feeling positive. I was feeling you know, upbeat again. I was starting to feel myself just a little bit. 
And I went down to this event and there were all these other incredible veterans there. I mean, that's where I met uh, Vance McMurray who put me in touch yeah. with you and all these guys, you know, a lot of special operations community guys, uh, green berets, seals, Rangers, uh, Navy spooks and foreign military. I mean, there was a huge variety of just incredible people at this event and every leg I would go out and I would run with a different person and talk to them and tell their stories. And everybody I was talking to there, it had a very similar experience to me, which was what we had a severe TBI or a TBI. A lot of these guys are from getting blown up for a career. Uh, in my case, it was, uh, impacting the sound barrier, but we had a TBI. And the treatment that we got was psych meds based and it made everything worse and drove all of us into these psychoses, alcoholism, drug addiction. Like it just, it was like the whole system was put in place to just destroy us. And yeah, right. we all recognize that there. And by hearing all these other guys' stories, it was hugely positive oh, yeah. for me. It gave me hope. Like I'm, I am on the right path. Like I wasn't crazy. Like, mm my family needs to listen to me. I'm not, and I finally wasn't on my own in this journey. It felt like, and through that, I made a lot of connections. Uh, I started, you know, doing podcasts and I started getting in, into these other, uh, organizations, these, this whole world of veteran nonprofit organizations that have been building up to fill all the gaps that are created by the poor healthcare system that veterans receive. And, mm. I got involved with the Warrior Angel Foundation, who finally got me on a nutraceutical protocol. They got my blood tested so I could see where my hormones were off, which is a very common issue with uh, traumatic brain injury is when your brain's mm -hmm. not functioning properly, your hormones aren't being produced properly. And so my cortisol levels were jacked way up. And instead mm -hmm. of producing all the other things my body should be getting, like testosterone and growth hormone, my body was just pumping out cortisol like it was going Jeez. going crazy right. so the that stress was hormone yeah and i was just mm -hmm. stuck in this permanent fight or flight mode and but by getting my blood looked at and actually getting evaluated a physiological level they were able to see where i had deficiencies and address them and then getting on i was already on a largely anti-inflammatory diet i was already exercising which are pretty crucial but uh, with the nutraceuticals and then addressing hormone imbalances I was essentially creating an environment in my body that it could start to heal itself. And by that, I mean, I'm taking things that are anti-inflammatory, not only on my body, which was helpful for all my physical injuries there, but also for the physical injury in my brain. And by reducing yeah. the inflammation and then feeding it healthy fats from things like omega-3 uh, fish oil, uh, yeah. that was allowing my brain to heal itself and then have this healthy fat fuel to rebuild it. And wow. with that, over the past several months now, I've been like regaining my mental function. Nice. I've been physically improving drastically, just getting off of Seroquel. I mean, I was trying to run and do stuff, but I was constantly winded. I, I could barely run a 10 minute mile and I used to be able to run like a sub five minute mile. So Damn. not being able to run a 10 minute mile without just wheezing and gassing myself was miserable but all that training it felt like i had been training with like a hundred pound ruck and once i was off seroquel and having these other things addressed it was like i could breathe again i could run again i could you know my strength improved yeah. it was like all these things i went from i had very uh like all my vascular structure was just like gone and i started to get like my muscular and my tone back and i started nice. to feel good
And so I've just been on this journey now since uh, last March of actually getting real help. And uh, I, there I met a guy named Jesse Gould. He's a yeah, yeah, Jesse. Yeah, Jesse's he, the man. Uh, he's he's awesome. And he he invited me him. to Peru, and I got to go down there for oh, uh, a week. Did ayahuasca? Ayahuasca retreat, and that no was shit. incredible. I mean. I begin the wow. physiological side of trust and then combine that with the sort of soul healing that the psychedelics provide. It was, wow. I mean, the psilocybin was good and I've done peyote and that was really helpful, but the ayahuasca <laughs> was like a deep dive into my soul. Yeah. And yeah. yeah. It's hard to articulate wow. everything that I experienced over those three days of ceremony, but the big picture of it was, it was like I reconnected with that interconnectedness that is part of us all that we're all part yeah. of the same thing yeah. and you can it call goes it to the heart God or, yeah. or the spiritual mm. world this interconnectedness but i felt that and i experienced it in a very deep level and it felt like i lived for eons and experienced life from the beginning of time and was just reconnected to everything around me and it really helped heal my soul on this deep deep level that had been damaged and for so Beautiful. long i just been dark and bitter and angry and full of rage. And it was like that, that ball of rage in my core had just burst into the starlight. And I was just one with wow. the universe again. And yeah, so I yeah. did that. And then uh, shortly thereafter, I went down to Texas through an organization called Defenders of Freedom, which is run by Donna Cranston. And uh, what they do down there is they put you in a two week intense traumatic brain injury clinic at a place called Resiliency Brain Health. And that was incredible too. They did a full up neurological evaluation. They figured out exactly where my brain had been damaged. And then they addressed the issues from my brain damage through a lot of modalities that were very unintrusive and easy. One of them being just uh, eye movement drills, uh, basically staring at a popsicle stick with a sticker on it and using my eyes to track it left and right and up and down. Uh, and a lot of these really simple treatments that should in my opinion, one of these facilities should be on every medical yeah. base, on every military base. It should be in every health clinic and it should just be something people go and do because even if you haven't had severe brain injury or all these physical injuries, just the chronic stress of life can cause neuroinflammation and lead right. to serious mental issues as we age and hormone deficiencies and imbalances. But by doing this two week clinic, I saw all, uh, at the beginning of the clinic, they do a full neurological evaluation and they do a lot of testing. So they check your reaction time and your memory and all these little markers. And after two weeks of these treatments, they retest you. And all of mine went from a lot of like low average to above average scores uh, on almost every single thing. So wow. just in two weeks, I saw massive improvement in a lot of my cognitive functioning. Um, what? That was just awesome. What yeah. have, uh, you know, the, the people who told you to stay on all these different meds or your friends and family who said, hey, you're doing the wrong thing. Uh, have they seen how you are now and what what's the reaction been? Yeah. I mean, my wife and I were on the verge of divorce. I mean, we were putting in place like how we're going to do it, how we're going to manage with my condition. You know, we were planning the, you know, how are we going to divide up the house and all of our things Yeah. before this happened in March? And now we're like, our romance is back. Uh, 
it's like I've gotten my life back and I've gotten go. a lot of my cognitive ability and my physical abilities back. And it's been huge. And people see that and they're just kind of in disbelief. A lot of them still like, I can't believe that you've come back from that. And I still haven't talked to my VA psychiatrist. Uh, oh, now. please go see him so, <laughs> and come back in the I show and tell us what he go, said. <laughs> but yeah, he's, he's a great yeah. guy. Like all my VA docs are great, but they're just, they don't realize how narrow their their focus is and that right, there's right. all these things out there. And unfortunately, a lot of the modalities I was doing at the brain clinic in Texas, they're intentionally being suppressed by the pharmaceutical industry because there's such a competition to their sure. business model. And if people can go into a clinic like that and in two weeks not need to be on any of the meds anymore, yeah. like that's a huge threat to them. And they are legitimately they'll find some of these modalities and they'll use their their clout they'll use their means Money. to destroy them they'll to buy these technologies up, they are. Disappear yeah. them. they'll they'll threaten people to get rid of them they'll use their arm of the fda which is essentially controlled by them to make these things illegal even though they're not controversial in any way and it's there's just a whole shit show behind the scenes going down in healthcare right now to build up the pharmaceutical industry's business at the expense of the health of our whole country. And yeah, like you said, yeah. the, the food industry has gone down the same path, making things cheaper and crappier. And American food is full of so many artificial chemicals and Absolutely. nasty stuff that's illegal in a lot of other yeah. countries. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, and you can see it in the health of our country. I mean, so many people are sick and obese and mental health issues are just skyrocketing. But it's the dollar. there's a whole there. different way we can go. And I've experienced it firsthand from severe injury. And now I'm freaking training for ultra events. My mental functions back in a lot of ways. And uh, right on, man. It's just a completely different route. And it Good doesn't you, involve man. pharmaceutical drugs, you know. Well, what is what is what are some of your practices that keep you uh, thinking positively, keep your body and your brain uh, continually discovering more health? Um, you know, I mean, what are your practices now? Do you have like a ritual in the morning? Do you meditate? Are you, you know, running, breathing? Just yeah. Curious. So I've got a whole combination of things I do, uh, from the guys at heroic hearts project. Uh, I worked with uh, moose who's a former seal. He's kind of been my counselor after the session and he taught me about Wim Hof breathing. Yeah. So yeah. I, I'm a big fan of, I do, uh, you 30 rapid breaths. Uh, deep, rapid breaths. And then I hold out for, you know, I started just doing it like 30 seconds, but now I can do three minute external breath holds. And I'm nice. trying to get Damn, you better. I, I get the 205 uh, is my best, but yeah, yeah, yeah. Go ahead. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and so that I find really healthy. And I, I actually, when I do that breathing exercise now, it puts me into a, almost like a psychedelic state. Mm -hmm. It's putting me into what is actually like real meditation. It feels like what, what you're supposed to be able to do when you meditate for, and before I could never get to that state, but it's like this, uh, and I'm, I'm just exploring, I mean, you know, I'm just starting to get to that level, but to be able to essentially go into like almost like a psychedelic mindset just through a breathing exercise has been really cool. Uh, I still do every morning. I do some of the eye movement drills that they showed me, which anybody can do at home. Uh, your eyes are essentially an extension of your brain. And by doing these eye movement drills, it helps to stimulate, stimulate your brain and heal your brain. And so is, it, is there a name to that exercise? So just for audience, if they want to discover or take a look, um, 
you know, I should look up what exactly it's called. We just call them the eye exercises there, I think. But okay. uh, you essentially yeah, can just, if, take a, just take a popsicle stick and put uh, four or five little stickers on it, like little circular stickers that have something on them. Like in my case, I've got like one that's got like a little shark on it and a little lion and a few other animals and hold that stick out about arm's length from your face at, at head level. And then you can move your head side to side. They call it the no-nos and the yes-yeses. And while you move your head, keep your eyes focused on one of those stickers. And by keeping your eyes solid and tracking your head, it somehow helps stimulate. So you do that vertically, and you can also do it horizontally by shaking your head no-no and yes-yes. And then you can also do one called saccades, which is using uh, four or five of those different little stickers, again, held out at arm's length in front of your face, and then focus on the top sticker, and then focus at the one below, and down, and down, and down, and then back to the top. And you just repeat that as several times. And you only need to do about 45 seconds of this per wow. day, about three days a week to see benefit from it. Uh, so I do that. Uh, I take, I have a little electrical stimulation device that I can put on uh, areas where I have nerve damage and it's like waking mm. the nerves back up. I, they were told me that my nerve and my hand, my median nerve was severed and I would never get function back there. Mm. And also I have a foot drop in my left leg that they said would never come back by using this little electrical stimulation device. I've started to regain both sensory function of those nerves as well as motor function of those nerves in areas where they said that that would never come back. Uh, so, wow. I just did the audacity of the doctors and just to be like, Oh, like, I mean, like they're almost playing God. It's like, well, you're never going to be able to do this again. And after there's a story, your story is another one, but stories after stories after stories of people, you know, being, uh, you know, fatally diagnosed with cancer and they beat it and come back and, and they're running marathons, you know, or other like very traumatic in injuries that happen from car accidents. This and that. You're never going to walk again and people walk again. Like, yeah. I don't understand like where the fucking doctors and the medical community like gets this you know, has the balls to say like, you know what, like you're never going to be able to do this again instead of, you know, relying on or encouraging, you encourage the human spirit. You begin to, you know, give the possibility in the mind and plant the seed and things can really start to happen. Things can start to change. And then I just don't get like, you know, you mentioned it before, like, you know, Vietnam era. And I think we're still, our medical system is still, has not evolved from that 1960s, oh, yeah. 70s, and 80s. And, and it's, and it's, I, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't understand like why our health facilities aren't about our health. It's all about like, you know, fulfilling the government contracts, it seems like, and getting the yeah. pharmaceutical industries and, well, you know, and, and yeah, go ahead. You know, the, the other side of things is, uh, you know, um, the, in the healthcare industry, a lot of people aren't used to seeing people like Keegan who are willing to put in that amount of effort to heal. Um, so, sure. you know, the, the, they basically dumb it down to the lowest common denominator. Who's that lowest mm -hmm. common denominator is the person who's not going to put in any work. And so they're trying to prepare Keegan or people like Keegan for the worst case scenario mentally. But in doing yeah. so, they're, they don't I don't think they realize what they're doing for you. They're, they're not preparing you mentally. What they're doing is actually giving you this uh, kind of quote unquote death sentence for your body and for your mind. And it's actually depressing and it's actually working against you. But if they came in and said, well, look, this is, this is what we've seen in the past, but that doesn't mean that you can't overcome these odds. 
Um, so they, like really building you up with some type of optimism yeah. or, or support, I think yeah, would, uh, exactly. would be pretty good. Um, I, and real quick, Lindsay uh, looked up what you were talking about, and she says it might be the vestibular. The yeah, the, the, the popsicle stick has said it might be the vestibular and Cawthorn Cooksey exercises. Uh, so if you're listening and you look up vestibular and Cawthorn Cooksey exercises, that might be, <laughs> we're just guessing, but yeah, we, that might be. yeah. So, uh, yeah. Yeah, we just call them yes, yeses, no nos, and saccades. But there you uh, go. There you that's, go. that's, that's a lot easier to say than what I just said. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, man, uh, uh, Keegan, you're a, you're a hell of an inspiration, brother. I mean, the, the fact that you are here, uh, some of the comments that we have off to the side here. Uh, first off, somebody wants to buy your rights, your movie rights, <laughs> which is pretty cool. Um, and then, you know, some other folks are saying, you know, uh, Hey, that definitely wasn't your time when you ejected. You're definitely here to do some more special and great things. Um, so yeah. they, uh, they really appreciated your coming on here today um, and, and what you've shared thus far. Um, I want to I want to respect your time. And I know we've been going uh, 40 minutes past our original <laughs> plan. It doesn't matter. It, I love this. It's, it's flown by. It's absolutely flown by. And I could talk to you yeah. all day. So, um, yeah, I want to turn it back over to you to see if there's anything kind of final words that, that you have to say. And then uh, last thing is like how people can find you if they wanted to know more about you, your story um, and connect with you. Yeah. So, I mean, my message, you know, for anybody out there, whether you're a veteran, civilian, whatever your background is and you're having struggles in life, just know that you don't have to be doomed to this permanent existence of misery where you just take your drugs and go home and shut up. Uh, but you got to have hope and you got to do the work to do that. And there's no mm -hmm. easy pill that you can just take a pill and things are going to get better. You have to change your lifestyle. You have to change your food. And I don't mean you have to eat crappy diet carrot. Like you don't have to see carrots the rest of your life. Like <laughs> the food I've relearned how to make now with all these veggies and plant-based things and I, I'm a hunter, so I, I eat a lot of wild game that I get myself. Uh, and, like all these things are delicious and they're way better. And now I go to a lot of these restaurants that I used to go through and think were great. I'm like, man, this food sucks. Like, I <laughs> yeah. discovered really healthy, nutritious, delicious food. Like being on a healthy diet doesn't mean you have to eat terrible tasting things. In fact, it's the opposite. Uh, so yeah. diet, exercise, I've gotten into yoga. For anybody out there who's hesitant about yoga, like I started going in Virginia Beach and I started going to uh, these hot yoga sessions and the whole room is full of fit, attractive women, <laughs> in super nice, tight fitting outfits. And I would come back and be like, where were you at? I was like, I went to yoga. And they're like, oh, yoga, that's for chicks. And I'm like, okay, you can think that, but I had a great time. And I got good, good exercise, regaining flexibility and strength. And uh, Beautiful. And you Anyways, get to lose, yes. use your breath. It's meditation. Yoga is that, I mean, that's what I teach a lot of times. So, yes, thank you for plugging yoga. I appreciate that. Yeah, Keith. yeah. Uh, so, yeah, you just got to kind of take control of your own health and just know that there's other modalities out there and things that you can do. If you're, if you're on the veteran side of the house, there are an increasingly more and more of these nonprofit organizations that are out there to help people. Uh, people from operation surf they'll take you out surfing so you can kind of yeah. get a little full recharge in the ocean uh there's one called one more wave out of san diego and they have like a group text you can be anywhere 
in uh, the country and outside even uh, and get like a text group with other people that want to go out and go surfing with you. Uh, wake for warriors will take you out wake surfing. There's a bunch of them. They'll take you out hunting and on climbing expeditions and then uh, vet solutions for the psychedelic side of the house, heroic hearts project uh, for the uh, psychedelic side with ayahuasca uh, warrior angel foundation can get you going with some nutraceuticals and a blood test potentially. So there's, there's a lot of ways to get out there. Uh, Defenders of Freedom is a really good one if you want to do a TBI clinic. Uh, awesome. You just got to yeah, there's two here. We got uh, Fair Winds and Following Seas. Sorry to cut you off, Keegan. Fair Winds yeah. and Following Seas are two other, I guess, veteran organizations that I are think kind of offering the same services. That's actually just a it's just a Navy saying uh, that's the so that's somebody signing off saying, hey, thanks. Oh, shit. Uh, what the yeah. fuck do I know? <laughs> uh, hey, all, all this good. code. All, all good, code. man. Anyway, it's sorry. Navy, Navy code. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, just uh, don't lose hope. There's there's other options out there, but you got to kind of take it upon yourself. And uh, yeah, right on, man. Yeah, like I said, you've been an inspiration. Will, I'll turn it over to you uh, for any closing comments, no, and then I'll no, wrap it up I, with a closing I, practice, brother. Well, just to follow up on what you were saying there, Keegan, uh, you know, Men Talking Mindfulness stands not just for veterans, but men, but all people as well. Yeah, and we're trying to be that place that you can find these services, find these alter alternate treatments, get away from, you know, the pharmaceuticals, and, and uh, you know, if, if that's what needs to happen. Uh, and away from, you know, the old way of doing things and, and into your body, into nature, into your breath, into meditation, into your life, connecting with people, you know, that will continually, you know, inspire you and encourage you and, 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 and push you forward into who you can be, you know, what you can do and the healing that might be needed as well. Uh, so please like, uh, you know, share this episode, but also, you know, I, it's not even, I don't want to plug the show show. I'm just, you know, this is really what I'm so passionate about and why, why I love working with the show and why I love working with John and love speaking with someone like you, Keegan, because there are other ways to get out there. And if we just start to connect to ourselves, we just start to connect to nature. If we just start to connect to other people, things really do change dramatically and can happen very, very, very quickly. Um, so if anyone's out there listening that is suffering, you know, whether it's physical, mental or both, um, you, know, uh, you know, please hit us up. Like I'm willing. I want to help. John wants to help. You know, Keegan, I'm sure you're willing to with what you've gone through, you know, to uh, put your foot forward and also help other people that are suffering as well. So, yeah, uh, uh, something I actually wanted to say, too, uh, if, if anybody has questions, I'm happy to answer genuine questions. Uh, Instagram is probably the easiest way to interact with me uh, after this episode. I'm at Kagan Smurf Gill, uh, which is K-E-G-A-N Smurf, mm -hmm. just like Smurf, and then G-I-L-L, -L, Kagan Smurf Gill. So please, if you have questions or want links to some of the organizations I mentioned, or if I can you know, help you in any way, I'm happy to answer genuine questions on there. Brother, we've been mispronouncing your first name this entire time. Kagan? Uh, so most people pronounce oh, no the name kidding. Keegan, but the traditional Irish pronunciation of the name is Kagan. So Kagan. that's what my oh, family shit. So it's like, No, it's all right. Uh, all right. It's super common, and I, I hear it, and I don't even notice it anymore because so many people say <laughs> Keegan, but it's, it's pronounced Kagan. Kagan. Uh, All right. Actually, well, uh, it means uh, a yeah. ball of fire in Gaelic. And uh, you are that. You are and, that. Uh, yeah. yeah. And a scrappy motherfucker. You're a one yeah. scrappy motherfucker. <laughs> I will say that for sure. 
Hey, get uh, but thanks, okay, John. Good. Yeah, Keegan, thank you. Yeah, I'll take it away, man, with the uh, with the grounding practice to wrap it up and uh, and call it a day. But yeah, thanks again for being here, thank and you. for our audience who's watching live and those who are listening later. Go ahead and get into a comfortable position and whatever is safe and comfortable for you, whatever that may look like. And let's just start by bringing our attention to our breath, not forcing anything, but just noticing the physical sensation associated with the breath. The breath is with us all day long, every day. And we can tap into this anytime, any place. So let's tap into it right now. Noticing what that breath is doing physically with each breath in and with each breath out. Notice how the air feels as you breathe it in and how it feels as you breathe it out. And notice how you feel, feel emotionally after listening to today's episode and everything that Kagan has been through, what emotions bubbled up. Note those, don't feel the need to change them, but just sit with them. Note those emotions, those feelings. And we'll close together with three deep cleansing breaths. Begin by letting as much air as you can out from your belly, bringing your navel to your spine. Nice deep breath in. Hold at the top and release, release, release. Holding empty at the bottom, noticing how you feel. Deep breath in, filling your lungs. Hold at the top and relax, relax, relax. Empty, empty, empty. Noticing that empty feeling at the bottom. Deep breath in, last one. Holding full at the top. And let it go, let it go, let it go. And let's bring some micro movements back into the body, moving your head around, your neck around. And if your eyes were open, go ahead and start to blink them open. Kegan, such an honor, brother. Thank you so much for sharing that incredible, incredible story. I'm going to go back and listen to this at least one more time myself. Um, and we very much appreciate you, man. Thank yeah. you guys for having me on. And, uh, you know, give me the opportunity to share this uh, with other people. Of course. Yeah, we should follow up. We should follow up in a year. See where you are, Kagan. Yeah. Yeah, I'm sure you're going to have more of these, uh, you know, uh, psychedelic experiences and do more breath work. And, you know, if you're not meditating yet, get into meditation. And we'd love to hear uh, where you are in a year. So, you know, please come back because you're really an inspiration for all of us. 
um, just by, you know, what you've been through. So congratulations for being where you are today. And have Absolutely. a great time on that uh, incredible uh, bike ride you're going on, the dirt bike. Yeah. Is, that, is, that, is that right? Yeah. Uh, it's, uh, yeah, the Margie Gessick 100 up in Marquette, Michigan. It's uh, 110 miles of brutal mountain biking with uh, 12,000 feet of elevation and a lot of hiking and climbing with your mountain bike. So there you go. Be, have uh, fun with that, man. Have fun. Thanks. And for our Thanks audience, everybody. you know, if you yeah. tuned in today, hey, thank you for tuning in live. If you're listening later, thank you for tuning in there. But please share this with anyone who you think may get value from it. And I believe today's episode is one of those ones that needs to be shared with everyone. So thank you very much again. And until next time, peace. Peace, peace. Thanks again. Peace. Joining us today, we hope you walk away with some new tools and insights to guide you on your life journey. New episodes are being published every week, so please join us again for some meaningful discussion. For more information, please check out mentalkingmindfulness.com.